Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. And joining us to break down your week in media and marketing is our advertising and comms reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hello. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to the team from VAMP about the rise of influencer marketing. Still a a, a very quickly growing industry. Um, You know, we're seeing more kind of marketing spend come into the channel, but also we're seeing brands put aside just marketing spend just for influencer marketing, which probably wasn't happening kind of a year to 18 months ago. Competing with creative agencies. And I think the nice thing about the influencer side of things is they're, they're creating content that's pre-built for the channel. Yeah. So it performs much better. And disagreeing with Jules Lund on whether tech companies should be making a profit. No, we, we disagree. I think, um, uh, you know, you want to have line of sight to profit. Um, you know, this year, for instance, we, we, we've turned our first maiden profit. So I think that's an important thing to be able to, you know, go to market and actually have line of sight to that, especially if you're taking other people's money. But first... The week's topics. M. Rossiano exits the Today FM breakfast show. The disappointing launch of Seven's Take Me Out. Watchdog rules Sunrise breached the broadcasting rules over that controversial Indigenous adoption coverage. And we round up the week in the world of creative. So this week, M. Rossiano announced what I think we all saw coming, that she would be leaving her breakfast show at Today FM. I suppose the only slight surprise, Zoe, was that it's come a tiny bit earlier than we thought it would. It has come a tiny bit earlier. We we were predicting that she would leave Today FM Sydney Breakfast by the end of the year. For those who aren't based in Sydney, M. Rusciano runs a breakfast show with Ed Cavalli and Grant Denyer and has been doing it with those three the whole of this year. Last year, she was actually doing it with comedian Harley Breen. She made it pretty clear from the get-go, though, that she wasn't super keen or invested in the Sydney Breakfast Show, and and while she said it was her decision, and she is pregnant and set to um to have a baby uh quite soon, it does feel like it was inevitable, regardless of the situation at hand. Do we know whether she's being paid out for the rest of her contract? I do not know. That's a very no, excellent I'd question. I'd be curious because that it sometimes felt like um just about everybody in radio was on a Today FM breakfast contract that was being paid out. You know, sort of uh, famously Jules Lund pretty much wrote the business plan and started Tribe as one of the many failed breakfast lineups. So it would be it would be interesting to see, see if we're back in on I'm going to jump in here, Zoe, and disagree with you that it's she's never been invested in the Sydney breakfast show. I think anyone who's willing to get up at 3.30 in the morning, regardless of how much money it's for, I think she was invested. I think she did try. I think what you can argue is that she probably checked out this year. I don't think it's fair to say she she never fully committed to it. Well, don't forget, she she quite publicly said at the start she, she was going to do the show for Melbourne. It wasn't worth moving to Sydney because it might not work out. Oh, I think she's always been very, very clear that it might not work. She's the first to admit that she sort of almost self-sabotages in, in a lot of ways so that things go up in flames. In her stage show this year, she joked about how she was going to inevitably get herself fired before the end of the year. So it's not a huge surprise, but 
I think in a way she she wanted it to work, but then the dynamic with Grant and Ed, as you mentioned this year, obviously just wasn't working for anyone. And Viv, you you know, we, we have our own views within the media bubble. What do you think the ordinary listener thinks about all of this? Uh, yeah, look, it is easy to get caught up in the media bubble and I am actually a fan of M. I think that her radio show with Harley Breen last year clearly didn't resonate if you look at the ratings figures, but I thought it was doing something different and something interesting. But that horrific phrase that politicians trot out that I hate, mainstream Australia, uh, obviously are more of a fan of the likes of Kyle and, and Jackie O, who despite falling from the top FM spot recently, still are very, very dominant. In fact, Zoe and I were in an Uber recently, probably making a mistake of discussing work in an Uber, given the Carl Stefanovic situation. And we were talking about uh, my dislike of Kyle Sanderlands and, and Jackie O and, and talking about M. Rusciano. And as soon as Zoe exited the Uber, the uh, the Uber driver was very upset with me because he was a huge fan of Kyle Sanderlands. And it was quite eye-opening just to hear how passionate this guy was and, and about whose, Kyle. whose uber rating was at stake at this point mine that yes. would be mine so <laughs> zoe very kindly uh let me jump in her uber as we do live quite close by but she does uh she does jump out first and as soon as she left it became quite evident that i didn't think zoe was going to get a good rating <laughs> no from... five stars for zoe <laughs> so i spent a good 15 minutes trying to turn it around and promising the uber driver that as soon as i got home i'd jump on 10 play and watch Trial by Kyle, which was a dirty, dirty lie. I've already watched Trial by Kyle and I'm not a fan. I think the one thing I'd add back on um, on M is that, and it's not really M, it's, it's Today FM as a station, is that long-term investment in one show just feels like something incredibly far-fetched. They've changed so many times. Ash London's in from Monday and, you know, I think they'll give her a good test and they'll see, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's completely new again by January next year. Look, she's a talent, but the the rumour is she doesn't want to do breakfast. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. Okay, well, from endings, we move on to new beginnings. This time in television, we had a launch from Seven this week. It's new dating game show because you can never have enough dating shows. Take me out. Zoe, how did it do? Well, on the first night, it premiered with 604,000 Metro viewers, which... Not great? Yes, not great. But it, better but than the same show it, it in the really, same time slot the week before. Exactly. And I think the other thing to remember is that, you know, there haven't been a lot of good, successful launches. We had a really good year for nine last year in um, Ninja Warrior was incredibly successful on launch, as was True Story with Hamish and Andy. But other than that, we haven't seen shows that have really resonated on first run. Could it be, given that this is another dating show, that we could see a bit of a Love Island effect where video catch-up is where Take Me Out uh, catches up a bit? Potentially, yes. And I think overall, I think we'll see growth. They've, it, it feels like it needs to be a long-term commitment from Seven on this one. Bachelor and Bachelorette, uh, Beverly McGarvey, who's Ten's chief content officer, talks about, you know, in the first years it wasn't delivering huge audiences and it builds over time. So if Seven's really serious about this show, I think that, you know, yes, we'll need to look at the the uh, broadcast video on demand numbers, but we'll also just need to give it a, a couple more runs than just two episodes or three episodes. Do you think that it's the right show for Channel 7. It feels like it's skewed to quite a young demographic. 
it's a bit different from their other sort of staple shows like My Kitchen Rules. Is it a case of right show, wrong network? Potentially, yes. I mean, when I spoke, when we both spoke to Angus Ross, who's the national programming director at Seven a few weeks back, they were talking about how they've not really been able to move away from their traditional shows like MKR or House Rules. What it feels like is they're trying to do something or anything that will potentially get an audience in, but it does feel like something that would probably be better suited to somewhere like uh, 10, where the demographic's just that little bit younger. And, you know, they 10 is very good at dating shows like they, they they do deliver the audience for that they've got the the demographics there so maybe it is just a case of uh wrong network but i guess we'll see there's there's more weeks to come sticking with television the australian communications media authority uh slammed if that's not too tabloid a word seven sunrise for its controversial indigenous adoption segment if you want a little reminder here's prue mcsween in full flow just like the first stolen generation where a lot of children were taken because it was for their well-being, we need to do it again, perhaps. Yeah. So, Viv, the ACMA found that the segment was uh, inaccurate and provoked racial contempt. Uh, Prue McSween, sort of a, I'm not sure professional commentator is quite the word, because the word, I'm not sure there was much that was professional about that, but former PR person turned commentator who uh, delights in uh, baiting the left, clearly went too far on that one. What does it actually mean, though, when the ACMA says that you've breached the rules? Look, that's a really good question, Tim, and, and one that I sort of posed to the office when we read this ruling. I sort of asked, is this another toothless tiger making a ruling on something that's really quite old now so everyone has mainly moved on and they'll get a, a slap on the wrist. Interestingly, when ACMA have made rulings in the past against the likes of Nine's A Current Affair, that program then broadcasts an apology acknowledging what it had done wrong. So in that respect, I guess people who were offended by the segment got some takeaway from ACMA's ruling. In this case, it feels like Seven has uh, somewhat doubled down saying that political correctness is preventing meaningful discussion. So from my perspective at the moment, it certainly doesn't feel like Seven's suffering any major consequences. Look, I, I mean, for the record, I guess the consequences they had were the protests the and the embarrassment that went with it, both when they were doing live broadcasts from, uh, I think it was the Gold Coast, it was a beach somewhere anyway, and also from the studios itself. And, I, you know, and to their credit, they had a much more serious nuanced conversation about it a few days later where they went back to the topic and and and, and did it well and i wonder if the fact that they've, they've, they've had this problem a couple of times is more to do with just the way that breakfast television works which is you line up your commentators to talk about the day's events and you don't know what the day's events are going to be when you line them up so of course it's you know Prue knows she's got to come in and, and be a bit controversial. Um, and then, of course, it's impossible in that to have a nuanced conversation about Indigenous adoption. It's certainly impossible to ha have, you know, anybody who's sort of, you know, representative of Indigenous heritage, for instance, just because of the nature of that show. Well, part of uh, what Seven said was part of the problem was some of their inaccuracies allegedly came from that morning's newspapers. So, so often breakfast television has to rely on what other media outlets are 
saying. So the segment claims that Indigenous children, should they be taken away from their families, could only be placed with relatives or other Indigenous families, which was found to be inaccurate. Seven's response to that was, well, that's what was in that morning's papers. So I guess it comes down to accountability. And even if Seven didn't originally make that claim, they then did broadcast it as fact. But you're right, it's totally to do with the nature of morning television. I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Because there's an editorial decision to make on whether to run with that story. Um, I sometimes do the newspaper review on the ABC News Breakfast once in a while. And I had a dilemma. I was doing it this Monday and I had a dilemma. There was a front page Daily Telegraph story, which was, it was relating to a bail hearing. So there was already a bit of a question mark about the, the, the legals, whether to go there. But I, in the end, I was weighing up whether to make it one of the topics I, I talked about. And I felt I just couldn't trust the thrust of that story enough to make it something that I could then confidently talk about. Um, but then, of course, a summarised demonstrator, if you do make that choice, then you've got to wear what happens. Well, yeah, it, it is a judgment call. And I think part of what Seven has been criticised for is that lack of diversity in who was talking about it and whether or not the correct and empowered people were were talking about this. So the likes of Prue and, and David Kosh and whatnot, I'm sure uh, there are many Indigenous people who've said they don't represent me, they don't understand my struggles, they don't understand this issue, so is it appropriate for them to be making sweeping statements and offering solutions when they're so far removed from the problems? Next, we take a whistle-stop tour through the week's most interesting ads. Abigail, let me bring you in at this point. A few different ads to talk about. Where do you want to start? Why don't we start with Nike? Let's start with Nike. So a really powerful ad out of the US and quite a big story uh, behind it. So uh, NFL player Colin um, Kaepernick, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, no, no one is contradicting me. Anyway, he was one of the players who created some controversy over choosing to uh, take a knee during the uh, the American anthem um, in 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 protest, sort of aligned with the the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Currently not working, and it has been suggested that perhaps could be because, uh, you know, sort of right-wing interests don't want him to. So a very, very bold move from Nike to have in front this, uh, this, this, this anniversary ad. What, what did you take as the message from it, Abs? I, I'm a huge fan of the ad. I really enjoyed it. Um, the main message that I took from it, obviously it's part of Nike's Just Do It campaign. It's their 30th anniversary ad. And for me, I, it really did bring home that just do it ad, but not, you know, they use an example of don't just be the fastest runner in your school or in your country, be the fastest runner in the world. So they sort of really do bring home that just do it, but to the next level and saying, you know, it's not impossible until you do it. And it's an inspiring ad anyway, but then with that, just that extra kind of political context as well, um, you know, it takes it to another level. The thing that I, and and one of the reasons that I'm a really huge fan of it is I think in today's society, it's really, really important for brands to stand for something. It's what consumers look for when they're making decisions. It's, you know, and I think that by Nike just using him in their ad as, as the voice, and you can see him at the ad as well, it sends a message of what Nike stand for as a brand. And as a customer, I'm like, great, 
give me the Nike shoes. Viv, let me bring you in on this because, of course, yes, there's the boycott Nike hashtag went far and wide. Does it matter if your customers who like you really like you? Look, there's been backlash and then, of course, there's been backlash on the backlash. And it's one of those ads where if you support it, you're probably already going to be quite a progressive person who believes in the Black Lives Matter movement and believes in his right to protest in the way that he did. You're going to probably already acknowledge that Serena Williams is one of the greatest athletes of all time. I don't think you're going to be Donald Trump watching that and suddenly be inspired to change who you are. So I think the ad is sort of preaching very much to the converted and then there's been the backlash and then there's that backlash to the backlashes who say, you know, I I love that, uh, you know, white people can't deal with this guy being on the ad, but they're perfectly happy for Nike to have, you know, allegedly child labour and, and, and sweatshops and whatnot. So it's really funny where some people draw the lines with brands with what they do and don't accept. But I think as well, looking at, from, looking at it from a commerce perspective, it's it's starting a conversation. So whether you like the ad or not, it's the ad's trending. People are watching the ad to decide how they feel about it. It's more exposure for the brand. So I think it works in that perspective as well. But then, you know, I I also think coming to your point on preaching to the already converted, it's better to to preach to people and, and stand for something rather than sort of stand for nothing and end up pissing both sides off. It's, it's better to sort of at least have one on your side. Well, let's talk about a couple more ads. Uh, Woolmark, a, uh, a very filmic piece from Woolmark this week. Filmic is a very good word. Yes, TBWA Sydney launched a global campaign for Woolmark, the Australian Merino Wool Company. Um, it was done by Chief Creative Officer Andy Delallo, who joined TBWA, I think, maybe a year and a half, two years ago now. And the ad basically is set in in the future. A Blade Runner-esque future. Correct. That is That presents a world focused on robots and synthetics and it's this woman running through the streets sort of for, for two minutes with this really great music. I actually really liked the music. Really good music behind it and she sort of eventually runs out of this town filled with robots and sheeps with plastic around them up the mountains to these sheep and sort of this revealing moment of oh my gosh uh, fresh air she can breathe but breathable wool exactly um but it's it is interesting it takes two and a half minutes to come to the point though do you think people watching it on youtube and i presume this is where they're supposed to find it as there's not much of a media budget will they stick around for the punchline oh that's a really good question um Probably not. And will it win lots of awards? Probably. Look, one thing I do like about this ad is I think it taps into a lot of movements that are gathering momentum at the moment. There's such a big pushback against single-use plastic at the moment, everything from straws in bars to unnecessary packaging on fruit. And I think watching that ad, people who are already getting that climate change anxiety and thinking about their carbon footprint – it's going to resonate with them and they're really going to start thinking about that. And the other thing that there's pushback against is fast fashion. It's so easy for us to order $6 dresses online and just keep ordering new clothes all the time and not think about who's making it, where it's coming from, the impact it's having on the environment, how many 
micro beads in it and, and all those things that are destructive. So I think the ad does tap into, okay, we can have something a bit, a bit more natural, a bit more breathable and a bit better for the world. I totally agree with you there because you know what I'm like, I'm all for that, all for the environment. And, and I really agree. But one thing that I struggle with a little bit is I think we're using the term ad, right? And if it's an ad, it's, it's selling a product and it has ROI. But, but for me, I look at it and I think it is a really beautiful, beautiful piece of creative, but I'm not sold on the ad side of it. And then just finally, while we're talking ads and peer recognition, Mumbrella's ad of the month for August, we, uh, and we recently revealed. The Honda HRV, Tim. It's an ad that basically is, uh, it features one woman playing six or seven different characters for the Honda HRV, which is supposed to show the diversity of the car and the diversity of the people that use the car. And why do you think people liked it? A lot of people commented that they liked it because it wasn't a stereotypical ad targeting women that featured families and shopping bags and going on coffee dates. And it was different and engaging to some of those stereotypical um, car ads that target women. And which was the agency behind it? The agency behind it was Leo Burnett. Thank you, team. I will let you all get back to the news desk. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Next, I chat to our head of events content, Damien Francis, behind the scenes at one of our summits. We are sitting behind the scenes at the Mumbrella B2B Marketing Summit. With me is Damien Francis, Mumbrella's head of event content. Hello, Tim. In a new segment which I like to think of as Content Marketing Corner, in which Mumbrella is doing its own content marketing, uh, telling about some of the things we've got coming up, the demos working on, that we hope that uh, you as our listening audience might just be interested in. So, uh, Damo, I guess the next one to think about is the published conference, September the 20th. It is the published conference, uh, a bigger lineup than uh, I believe we've had before. I'm going to say that because it's the first one that I've done for Mumbrella, so obviously... I hope it's going to be the best one. We've got a great lineup of very senior leaders from the publishing industry uh, coming down. And of course, it's been such a big year for the publishing industry. Uh, not to, not least Fairfax, uh, not least Facebook. Uh, some big names from both those companies coming to have a chat about what's going on and what's yes, happening in the future. Yes, and we've got Google reaching their hand out to publishers as well. We what certainly they might, do. How they might be able to offer them a helping hand on how they might be able to work with smaller publishers. Absolutely, well. we certainly do. And a few little ones in there in terms of sessions that maybe we haven't uh, publicised as much as we could have because there's been some really good news, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, Kirsten Galliott talking about uh, Qantas magazine and Medium Rare and they're so good at winning multiple uh, awards, so it'll be great to hear what uh, they're doing and how they're doing it and why. So what sort of person should come to publish? What kind of roles? What kind of jobs? Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, we're trying to target people who are publishers, people who are in sales, people who are marketing uh, these titles and these companies. It's quite a broad uh, range of people who should come and we're trying to put on sessions that will appeal to that broad range of people so as well. People who are interested in the business The of business publishing. of publishing, absolutely. Not just journalists, not just salespeople, not just marketers. All of them, get in there. We've got enough, I think we've got enough seats. Plus, 
Sep- that, that, that night, September 20th, is the Published Awards. Obviously, um, shortlisted teams uh, booking those final places now, which I'm kind of excited that we've got David Badil as the uh, I'm as the super excited. I have no idea who he is. Uh, well, but I've... surely you must be familiar with the classic World Cup song, Three Lions. Yes. It's coming home. Yes. No, uh, luckily you can't see my face at the moment. But The, the only sto- man who, and, uh, and I'm sure Josie will very kindly drop in a little bit of music in the background here. The only man who's been number one. Oh, just sing it quietly in the yeah. background. Yeah, just sing it quietly in the background, Josie. I'm just going to give you my mic. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I don't want to sing. Yeah, so David Baddiel, uh, along with Frank Skinner and Lightning Seas, I understand the only people who've had the same number one three times in the UK with that song. Uh, one of the, the football anthems. Anyway, it so happens he'll be in Australia at the time, so I'm glad to say that uh, British comedian David Baddiel will be presenting the Publish Awards. I'll um, preface that with, of course, that once I figured out who he was, it was quite amazing, and all my British friends, of which that's 90% of the people I know, said this was an amazing thing. And a kudos to you, Tim, I believe, because this is really your idea to, to bring him over, to be well, fair. Well, I, I, I happen to notice he was performing his one-man show at a very similar time, so I had a hunch he might be in the country at the time. And I'm looking forward to seeing this show as well, which is at the, uh, the Seymour Centre the Friday before. Now, look, while we'll talk about other new stuff we're doing, so we, we had a little experiment in Melbourne a few weeks back where we, did, we put on a course called Digital Essentials, which was uh, presented by Russell Easter, and it was this kind of crash course in basics of digital marketing. Went very well so we're bringing digital essentials back um over september through to november in sydney brisbane melbourne and you can find all of this by the way if you want to go to the mumbrella.com.au homepage and then just click on events the tab up the top then you'll find a guide to all of these things plus the other new experiment is digital sales digital sales essentials, essentials. that's right so it's the same as digital essentials in terms of sydney melbourne and brisbane as well targeting of course the sales side of things and making sure that uh, the industry professionals get all the questions they need answered in a very specific manner by Russell. And to your point, Tim, that first Digital Essentials was sold out, I believe. Um, so this one should be really great uh, and a little bit more targeted to, towards, as you say, the firstly, the, the, uh, the sales in particular uh, and then Digital Essentials across those three cities too. Um, and tickets are selling quite quickly, I believe, as well. Then another one of yours is the Entertainment Marketing Summit on November the 22nd. That's right. Day yeah. after my birthday. And that's why we timed it for that, uh, I believe. Um, and that may not be true. The exciting bit about that is we are very shortly going to announce our, our keynote speaker, our international keynote speaker, who... I think I can say quite safely we'll be flying in from London. Give me a hint. Will they, will, will, will they be, be travelling through different dimensions? They may, look, they may be. They may be. Um, the, the form of transport we may not be completely au fait with. Um, could be a big blue box? Could, well, it could be. It could be. But I don't want to say too much. Sure. I don't want to say, you don't want to jinx these things. We don't want to things. spoil the surprise. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so that's November the 22nd. And the key thing about Entertainment Marketing Summit is this is for people who work in marketing who represents brands in the entertainment space that's right so this isn't how you use entertainment as a marketing tool this is if you're an entertainment marketer so you're promoting you know film theater radio tv or whatever and so marketing is your day how do you market entertainment this is the one for you Um, absolutely absolutely and a a very broad uh, array of businesses should be involved in that and I think we'll get a lot out of the day as well 
TV, radio, festivals, ticketing. And uh, while we're at it, very quickly, and, it, and when people are listening to this, the deadline is right upon you, so move fast. The uh, Entertainment Marketing Awards. That's right. Get your entries in now. Uh, go to the website. The details are all there. The criteria is there for you to download. We like to, at Mumbrella, make awards relatively simple to enter. As long as you know a fair bit about your business, you'll be fine. Throw an entry in. Uh, good luck, and we, we definitely hope to be reading them quite soon. And then speaking of awards, just one more awards to mention. The search for the, uh, the, the, the next generation of talent, the Mumbrella Next Awards. Mumbrella Next Awards for people who have been in the industry for 10 years or less, no matter how old they are. Um, to celebrate a little bit, uh, Mumbrella being Mumbrella's 10th 10 birthday. Soon. That's so right. We will be we'll be running the Mumbrella Next Awards on December the sixth, which is just a couple of days before our tenth anniversary. So we'd love you to come there and join us in that celebration. the The deadline for that is far sooner, so please do get those awards in. And then finally, give us a little Mumbrella Cast exclusive of an announcement that's coming up next week for the the final Mumbrella event of the uh, of the of 2018. It's an exciting one, this one. It, an event we've been thinking about for a while. I think it's quite safe to say. Uh, it's going to be one where you will see speakers that arguably... Oh, big tease. Let's just reveal what the event is. Oh, okay, fine. It's the Mumbrella Luxury Marketing Summit. Uh, we've got some great speakers lined up uh, already. I will give you the exclusive now. The, 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 one of the leading speakers we, we've got is from Emirates One and Only, the very exclusive resort in the Walden Valley, uh, just at the base of the Blue Mountains. Uh, we've also got Greg Natale, who's one of the foremost interior designers in Australia, who's been on TV, works with a number of high-end brands. Um, and it's going to be a, a day of great insights about luxury marketing, but also how brands who are looking to get into that space uh, can do that through different strategies. And that event is on December the 6th. It is on December the 6th, yep, in Sydney. Thank you, Damo. No worries. Next, Abby and Josie talk to the team from VAMP. So joining us in the studio this week, we have Aaron Brooks and Ben McGrath, co-founders of influencer marketing platform VAMP. Um, Also here we have Abigail Dawson, who among many other things covers the influencer marketing beat from Umbrella. Um, So welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, So I just wanted to start off by getting your opinion on an influencer campaign, which has been getting some attention online recently. Um, I've seen a lot of people on my LinkedIn feed calling it the worst influencer campaign they've ever seen and that it even might mark the beginning of the end for influencer marketing now obviously this is a podcast so it's a little bit hard to um, visually explain what the what the, what was so bad about it but essentially it was um a post by an influencer called Andrew Papp um and he was promoting Nescafe and he took a photo with his fiance they essentially um tried to make their um engagement all about Nescafe and they posted a photo of them in bed holding a cup of cup of coffee along with the caption reflecting on our engagement this morning with a very needed cup of Nescafe gold in bed so many precious memories to cherish and so many more coffees to enjoy together at home now first of all I just want to get your thoughts on this campaign why do you think it caused such a stir online and why was everyone so negative towards it in your opinion well, obviously, it's clearly directed by the brand, I think, first and foremost. So um, in terms of the way that VAMP operates is we don't allow the brands to artistically direct the content. Um, but 
I think what's interesting is that, of course, the brand seems to have almost hijacked this kind of special moment between him and his now fiance um, by kind of jamming, I guess, product endorsement in. Um, and that's a key reason why we don't allow the brands to do that and, and, uh, and yeah, direct the, the content or the moment or the emotion, um, in the way that the content comes across. Yeah, it's pretty ordinary. Um, I think really it's inauthentic. So it's for me, if you're looking at, uh, influencer marketing, you know, and this being the death knell, I would say this probably endorses authentic content over, uh, lead brand lead content. Mm-hmm. But what I want to know is, I mean, when we think about influencers and and influencer marketing, this is like the no-no. This is what everyone says, don't do what what has given influencer marketing a bad name. How are we still seeing content like this? Like how how does this get past? Well, I think think first and foremost is that – I think there's a big education piece that needs to be done on the brand side and that's obviously something that we do a lot of with our clients. Um, You know, I think still a lot of the brands are sort of treating influencers like they probably do with their creative agency, which is like this is the piece of content we want you to create. It has to be this specific and this is what what we want to promote in your channel. Um, But again, it's still in its infancy, influencer marketing. So it's obviously a rapidly growing channel, but there still is a lot of education to be done. um, And it's something that we do on a daily basis with all our clients. And do you think it makes it harder for influencer marketing as an industry to be taken seriously when these are the kind of campaigns that might maybe stick in people's minds a little bit more than a nice campaign that they saw and appreciated, but didn't necessarily stick out in their mind? And also the campaigns that go viral. Like, you know, Mm. I I don't think we see a lot of great influencer campaigns going viral, but all you see are the really negative ones or the ones that aren't as well crafted. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. I think that's uh, been, I guess, because it is a a relatively new space, I think we find that most of the things that sort of it's always kind of the bad bits, but there's – some incredible parts to it and you know we see that daily with some of the campaigns that we've run not only here in australia but in the other markets that we operate in um you know we're running broadcast campaigns across you know sometimes 10 11 markets um the content they produce is incredible it's completely authentic um, there's no artistic direction given from the brands um so yeah this is kind of like one bad piece i guess in you know what we see i think to date we've generated fifteen thousand pieces of content for the brands that we've worked with um, and as I showed you just before the podcast, um, there's incredible stuff that we're producing on a daily basis. Now that word authenticity pops up quite a lot when we're talking about influencer marketing, what's your advice for a brand that really wants to get involved in this space and wants to create authentic content? What's the best kind of advice that you can give them? Yeah, I think one of the things that we look for is um, we're a closed network, so not anybody can be an influencer on the VAMP platform. So the f- number one thing that we look for is content, but then the content's got to be backed up with sort of a narrative to the the feed that the influencer has. And then second to that is the engagement with their audience, both above, you know, in likes and um, but then below in the comments back from the influencer, back with their community as well. And they're actually very sophisticated marketers in this space and brands typically don't even have as large a followings as individual influencers. So they're very sophisticated marketers. They know what they're doing. They know how to talk to their audience. And if you just trust them to do it, they do an amazing job. And why why do consumers want to follow influencers more than they want to follow a brand? I know it might seem like a stupid question, but surely if, if brands are really doing the good work that they keep saying that they're doing and that they make consumers like them and want to buy them, 
why aren't more people following brands' individual accounts? Well, I suppose brands ultimately form part of a lifestyle that people have. Influencers have wrapped up an attainable lifestyle. So, you know, they're not they're not flying around in a private jet. You know, they're, they're using products that um, and wrapping it into their lifestyle and part of that narrative I spoke about before in the feed. And that's really uh, why they're better at it than, than brands just posting their product. I mean, how much can you sort of look at photos of Vegemite or yeah. whatever it be? I think, yeah, just to add to that from what Ben said, I think it's, you know, we say it's just peer-to-peer recommendations, right? Like people will follow influencers based on the lifestyle that they feel is, I guess, closely linked to theirs. Um, so, yeah, it's really just kind of, and if they've got that authentic perspective, it doesn't matter that they're being paid to represent brands as long as it fits, you know, authentically into their lifestyle. So influencer marketing has had a very, very quick growth spurt, sort of came out of nowhere and grew really, really rapidly. Where are we at? Uh, have have we hit sort of a natural peak? Is there still more to come? And, and if there is, what is it? Um, I think for us, I mean, we work now with brands on, I guess, what we see as like kind of two parts to or two facets to a campaign. So we wrap up obviously the influencer piece, which is, Still a, a, a very quickly growing industry. Um, you know, we're seeing more kind of marketing spend come into the channel, but also we're seeing brands put aside just marketing spend just for influencer marketing, which probably wasn't happening kind of a year to 18 months ago. The other part of that is that then we work with brands on a content strategy as well. So we run the influencer piece. Once the influencers have created the content and posted in their channel, we then work with them to repurpose the assets and push into whether it be paid social. I mean, we've had our content featured everywhere from like Shakes Aid Road in Dubai um, in Out of Home. So um, we kind of see that as the evolution and that's kind of, I guess, the, the parts um, that I think brands are now kind of really sort of cottoning on to and the fact that they do create amazing content and they can reuse those assets over and over again. So if it's a content curation sort of as, as mm-hmm. you just mentioned then, does this mean that influencer marketing is sort of eating into the into the world of creative agencies? Yes, I would say it is definitely. I think creative agencies still obviously play, you know, a, a role um, in the overall landscape. But I think for especially for if you just look at social, for instance, um, you know, a lot of the time brands – Previously, you're trying to kind of take assets from other channels like, you know, TV and trying to retrofit it into social. And I think the nice thing about the influencer side of things is they're, they're creating content that's pre-built for the channel. Yeah. So it performs much better. But it does, it does assist agencies as well. Like 40% of our customers are agencies that are running campaigns through us and then taking those assets and then making them some of the feature content that sit in the actual ad campaign that they're running. A lot of people in the industry at the moment are quite divided between it's the death of the specialist agency, but then it's it's the time for the specialist agency. If you look at influencer marketing as being a specialist agency, do you think influencer marketing will grow to be able to do more content at a creative agency scale, or do you think creative agencies will start doing influencer marketing? Uh, I think creative agencies are facing a pretty tough fragmented media channel and it's really hard to be great at all of them, right? So, yeah, you'll get some people that are specialists. Like as an example, um, when SEO became something, that there's a lot of specialist agencies that popped up. But it'd be very hard to be a creative agency and then be an absolute master at all of the uh, new areas to be. So I think it's pretty tough on them. Now, just changing the topic slightly, um, I was doing a bit of research on you guys before you came in and I saw that you were actually the first Australian influencer company to become a Facebook marketing partner. Mm-hmm. 
I just wondered, I mean, I should probably have known what that term meant, but I actually <laughs> did it. So I just was interested, what, what is a Facebook marketing partner and what does it involve? Um, so it involves a very rigorous process initially to become badged. Um, so it's something that Ben and myself worked on for probably almost two years to kind of get through that process. Um, uh, for us, what it means is we basically sit in their creative portfolio or creative partners. So they've got their ad tech partners, which are things like Smartly.io and all these guys that basically sit on top of the ad platform. We are a source of um, content essentially. So we're a, a, a place for clients of Facebook to be able to come and source content for the channel and for the ad units on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. So they, the partners come to you and then you kind of recommend, you help them make content for uh, Facebook? So, yeah. So it's actually more the, that Facebook, Facebook's clients would come to us okay. and say, for instance, um, you know, we want, I don't know, 20 different images um, for a campaign. Um, and we want to test those 20 images in the ad platform because we want to, you know, test, optimize different creative. We would obviously create the content through our, um, our influencer community and then we'd pass them off, whether it's to the brand direct through Facebook, through the media agency to run on the trading desk, whatever it might be. Okay. And it's go- good for the influencers, it's secondary yeah. income. Yeah. And going back to the creative agency question, is it just influencer agencies that are doing that or are creative agencies also starting to get involved in this space as well? I think the problem with creative agencies is just sheer scale. So one of the things that influencers are is it's a variety of content. It can be as broad as you like. I think recently we ran a, a campaign for Adobe across uh, 14 countries. It produced 600 pieces of content and it did it inside two weeks. And the 600 pieces of content are amazing. It'd be very hard for one creative agency to do that. So... How do you pick your influencers that work on the campaign? So, I mean, first of all, our model we is... We don't. The, the, the brands do. Yeah. But um, our, first of all, our model is um, we have an invite-only platform. So our thing is we, we vet the influencers that come onto the platform. We don't vet the content. So that's kind of a way we differentiate ourselves. Um, but first and foremost, we look at content, we look at engagement, and we look at kind of reach as a, as a distant third, really. Um, our model is that, you know, we think that reach is relatively cheap. So obviously creating great content and getting an engaged audience base is what brands are paying for. And then from a reach perspective, you can repurpose that content into, um, you know, Facebook and, you know, pay a couple hundred dollars and get decent reach behind it. And contrasting your model to a company like Jules Lund's Tribe, I know that he works a lot with micro-influencers that maybe even have only like sort of a few thousand followers. Is that something that you do too? Or do you mainly work with the more sort of bigger influencers? No, no, like because we're not worried about reach. Um, what we're looking for is, as I said before, content and then the narrative. And we've worked with people and had them working in campaigns that have a couple of thousand followers and they might be coupled up with people that have 20, 30, 40, 50,000 followers. We really work in that space. Um, what we're trying to do is make sure that we present the brands with the options for who they want to use. The brands use the social feed of the influencers that are opting in to work with them to pick which ones they like and then they find a brand affinity. So both groups have actually got to choose each other. And then once the brands get that, they have uh, this moment when their content goes live, it's almost su- surprise and delight that they see the quality of the content that comes out, which is why we vet the people that are on our platform. Okay. Yeah. So obviously there are lots of different influencer agencies and even PR agencies that have influencer arms. Do you think now that sort of it's it's become so popular and grown so much, there are room for more? Or sort of, you know, to my question before as well, has it hit its peak? I think there's a lot of offerings out there. What 
will naturally happen is there'll be a consolidation of the models that work really well. So one of the things that we've been working on, like when we started, a lot of people think we're an agency and uh, they think that we go out there and handhold all the customers all the way through it. But influencer marketing really didn't exist when we kicked it off. So we invested a lot of money into building a prototype agency to understand what platform actual agencies would need, whether that be PR or creative or um, comms or whatever it's going to be. So that's about to be white-labeled and released, and uh, that'll be available at vamp.me forward slash beta shortly for anybody that wants to, to get on there. But essentially all the lessons that we've learned from around the world in all of our offices over the last three years will be available for brands or uh, agencies all over the world to use. Okay. And um, media personality and former CEO of Leo Burnett, Todd Sampson, mm-hmm. is on the board of VAMP. Um, what day-to-day contribution does he make to the company and how's that going? Well, so, so um, Todd, Todd isn't uh, on the board anymore, but he was okay. for, for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he is probably an influencer in his own right. So um, he had a great kind of profile, but helped guide us initially when Bant was first starting, especially to kind of go and talk to agencies um, and, and pitch into kind of that, that media land, which was a great help for us. Um, I think he's pretty busy doing other things these days. But, um, yeah, initially he was a, a really good person when we first kind of um, launched the business, obviously a, a credible kind of um, name to have on the board. Um, and like I said, he kind of helped formulate a lot of the things that, that we still use now to go to market. And speaking of people being on your on your board, Aaron, um, you you went from being an account director at Oracle, if I'm not mistaken, to go to co-founding a couple of businesses. Um, how did you manage? How did you manage that? And was it a hard transition? Um, well, I, I, I think a lot of the things that I was doing before, I was just selling, and I, I, I feel like there, a lot of that stuff is translatable into kind of what what still do today. You still go out to the market, still sell. Um, you know, you get a little bit of luck along the way as well. Um, I feel very fortunate to have this kind of opportunity and to work in VAMP and, you know, we've got a really amazing team around the world. So that's been exciting and it's exciting to watch it grow too. And I think because of the industry we're in, as you guys have said before, it's, it's changing very quickly and rapidly. So it's adapting to all that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, like I said, you sort of keep pushing on and innovating and, um, you know, we're, four, like I said, we're, we're three years in now. So, Long may it continue. We had Jules Lund, founder of Influencer Marketplace Tribe, on the podcast um, a while back. One of the things he mentioned was that his company, a tech uh, and tech companies in general, don't expect to make a profit. As a similarish company in a similar market, do you agree? No, we, we disagree. I think. Um uh, you know, you want to have line of sight to profit. Um, you know, this year, for instance, we t- we we've turned our first maiden profit. So I think that's an important thing to be able to, you know, go to market and actually have line of sight to that, especially if you're taking other people's money. Um, so we think that's something that we definitely disagree with. So within three years, that's pretty impressive. Were you expecting to turn the profit that quickly? Uh, I think we've been fortunate being at the advent of, a, of an industry um, and also getting the business model right. And being able to expand as quickly as we have uh, has worked in our favour. Um, we're sort of into uh, ARR of eight figures now, which is fantastic. Um, we did turn a profit. We have got a lot of interest in us. So if we want to take more money in, that'll just help us scale much quicker. Uh, but yeah, being able to be profitable and turn around to your investors and say, you know, life's good. We've got this right and we want to keep growing. Yeah. And looking long term, what's the aim to eventually 
to, to, to sell VAMP or are you guys in it sort of for the long haul? I know, we're having a lot of fun at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I certainly, um, you know, want to stay in it as long as possible. Um, you know, like as long as we can kind of continue to grow like we are and, um, you know, innovate like we are, you know, open new markets, it's an exciting place to be. Like, you know, it's great to come to work every day. Um, yeah, I've definitely got no plans to, to get out of it anytime soon. Um, so obviously you've had a successful three years, but what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing at the moment? Uh, probably hiring. So I think we're at 61 people at the moment. <clears throat> I think we're trying to hire about 70 to 100 people in the next 12 months. So it's literally just scale. Yeah. And I think in you know response to that as well, we, we want to continue to keep a great culture at VAMP as well. And I think that's difficult as well when you kind of scale and add new markets. Um, we've got another five that we're looking to open in the next 12 months. So as Ben said, you know, another 60 to 70 people to bring on. So I think those things internally, um, and then also we're growing up as a business too, so it's adding a bit of process to things, stuff that we kind of didn't need to worry about, you know, 12 months ago. You just mentioned opening in other markets. What's, where are you sort of got your sights set? Paris, Berlin, uh, Japan, Korea and Mexico City are on the um, hit list for the next 12 months. So this we, we run um, Australian Financial Year, so we, um, yeah, next 12 months we'll have all those open. Do you already have influencers in those locations? Yeah. Is it just a case of being able to reach them better? Yeah, exactly. So all those markets we've actually done campaigns in, um, but we see a bigger opportunity to actually put kind of people on the ground there. Um, it's the same across kind of Asia, you know, uh, Japan, we've run campaigns there, Korea, we've run campaigns there. But, um, you know, those, those markets are very big markets. So you kind of want to have people who actually know the industry, can speak the language, um, yeah, and kind of adapt the offering for that particular market. I think that's actually all we've got time for. But oh, cool. uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for joining. All thank right, you. thank you. And that's all for us for this week. And join us next week to hear from the Mumbrella Award-winning CHE Proximity Team. That's all for now, though. Toodle pip. <laughs>